Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, where you'll find your place in Luke 6, verse 12. Luke 6, verse 12. And while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. Sixteen years ago, as a midshipman in the Navy, I found myself on a frigate off the Australian coast. I'd not yet gained my sea legs, and so a more seasoned sailor, an Aussie, took me aside as he saw my green face, and he pointed my eyes to the horizon and said, look, because he knew that what I needed in order to make sense of the rolling waves and the motion that I was feeling and that was making me sick, he knew that what I needed was a fixed, unchanging perspective. And he was right. As I looked at the horizon, my mind began to make sense of what was going on in my guts. That served me well a few years later when I was on another ship in February off the coast of Virginia. Atlantic, the Atlantic Ocean is not kind to sailors in winter. And the waves were not merely rocking the ship, they were crashing over the bow of the ship. They were tossing it like a kite in the wind. Half the crew was sick, but as I st stood my watch that night, I had learned my lesson. I could not always see the horizon through the clouds and the waves, but I knew where it was and I was able to fix my eyes in that general direction and visualize it in my mind's eye. And as I grabbed onto something sturdy on the bridge of that ship, I was able to make it through without getting sick. Now, this is an effective metaphor, I believe, for our life as Christians. Frequently, the Christian life tosses us around like a storm tosses a ship at sea. We move from highs to lows, from times of plenty to times of need, from joys to sorrows, and we are unsettled by that motion. This morning, we come to a text that will give us a perspective that will buoy us in the midst of life's storms. For Luke shows us the heights of the Christian life, and he hints at their, its depths. But ultimately, he points us to the horizon by giving us a perspective of God's kingdom. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me, beginning in Luke 6, verse 12, as I read. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Our Father in heaven, 
as we come to your word this morning. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and give us that perspective that we seek. Lord, we pray that you would fix our eyes on the blessedness of faith, on the blessedness of repentance, on the blessedness of life in your kingdom, both now in times of difficulty and forever, that blessedness that we will enjoy when we are brought into your presence by your great grace. Help us to see that now, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we consider this kingdom perspective, I want to give you a view from the ground. We have come to what has been called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. You see that Jesus came down and stood on a level place. That's where it gets its name. But you also, knowing much of Matthew 5 through 7, hear familiar words that are known to you if you know Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In fact, much of the content in this sermon is the same, though this is shorter in its form. And so we naturally wonder, is this the same teaching event? Simply I'll answer and say, I think this is a different one, though some differ and that's okay. But I think it's different for a couple of reasons. First of all, because Luke presents this sermon in a different narrative context. Here it follows on the commissioning of the twelve apostles. Whereas Matthew presents the Sermon on the Mount right after the initial call of James and John and Peter. And he places the commissioning of the twelve later on. But the more significant reason why I think this is a different context is because what we see in Luke and in the other Gospels is that Jesus very frequently comes back to the same teaching and the same themes and the same ideas in different contexts. In fact, if you were to go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 and look up all of the parallel passages in Luke, you would see that Luke has taken much of that content and distributed it throughout his whole gospel, throughout his whole narrative. Jesus was often saying the same things, applying these ideas in different ways, bringing them into different contexts. And so I take this to be a different event, but the teaching, the content of the teaching is very much the same though it is briefer in form. Well, why does this matter? The reason I talk about this is because what I want to persuade you of, or what I want to urge you to do as you approach texts like this, is seek to understand them within their gospel context. That is, don't try to understand Luke chapter 6 primarily by piecing it together with what we find in Matthew 5 through 7. Try to understand it in the context in which Luke's placed it. He's given it a narrative framework that will frame our thoughts and prepare us to receive these words of Jesus in a particular context, in a particular way. We want to reflect on that. I've said to some of you before, let the text be the text. The historical event is not the text. And what I mean by that is we don't want to reconstruct a record of the history of what happened and treat that as if that's God's Word that binds us. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that this text is not true to history. I'm saying that Luke does not tell us everything that could be said. What Luke has presented to us, that is God's Word to us. That is what's binding on us. And we want to give our full attention to what Luke has said, and how he's presented it, and how he leads us to this Sermon on the Plain in the narratives that precede it. 
That will take most of our focus this morning. And then in the weeks ahead, we will look more at the content of this great sermon. But I want to frame these thoughts for you to help you understand why we're looking at the texts before this great sermon, and why we're putting so much attention on them. Now, in some ways, these texts are straightforward. You look at the commissioning of the Twelve, and you see it, and you say, well, that's just a list of Twelve men. All right, moving on. What can he say about this? This will be a short sermon, and we'll get to lunch very quickly. Some of you might be thinking. And then you see another report about Jesus doing ministry in a great crowd, and you say, wow, he's healing people. But we've seen this kind of thing already. It's rather repetitive. Shouldn't we just gloss over this and move on? No, we shouldn't. This is God's word to us, and he's put it here for a reason, and I want to help you to see why it is here and what it does to help us to understand what Jesus will teach us in this Sermon on the Plain. The way I want to frame it is by showing you that in these two passages, we see reasons for optimism in the Christian life and reasons for pessimism in the Christian life. Reasons for optimism and reasons for pessimism in the Christian life. Now recall Luke 4, verse 43. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, after he had preached in Nazareth and done some miracles in Capernaum, The people came to get him to do more miracles the next day. But he said this in Luke 4, 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come with him. And here we see one instance where he's preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But we also see that that kingdom is beginning to come in. Again, to use our controlling illustration from the introduction, it's like looking out at the horizon and seeing the light cresting over the horizon right before the sun rises at dawn. You see the light coming into your view. It's casting shadows across the ground before you. You already see that the sun is beginning to rise, even if you don't see the sun yet. In the same way with the coming of Christ, people in his time were beginning to see the coming of the kingdom. The light was cresting over the horizon. And Jesus is about to show them what they can expect as the kingdom comes. So we see reasons for optimism. And the very first one has to do with an extraordinary call of ordinary men. We'll come back to verse 12, I assure you. But let's look at verse 13 and what happens here and in what follows. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then he gives us the list of their names. He doesn't tell us a whole lot of information about them. We've already met Simon back in chapter 5 when Jesus first called him to come and follow and told him that he would become a fisher of men. John and James were with him. They were partners with Simon. They were fishermen, ordinary men. And we've already met Levi, or better known as Matthew, who was a tax collector, who Jesus called also and told him, follow me. And yet, because of that call, the scribes and the Pharisees looked at Jesus and wondered, how is it that he can dine and spend his time with sinners and tax collectors. 
These were the kind of people that he called ordinary men, or if they were extraordinary, they were extraordinary because of their sin and their associations. People would not have expected the Christ when he came to call tax collectors and fishermen into his inner circle, and yet these are the kinds of men which, whom he called. And we can imagine ourselves, we don't have insight into their inner psychology and the way they're thinking in this text. But we can imagine how we would feel if we were there with them. If we had been among Jesus' larger group of disciples, and then he had singled any one of us out, and count us any one of us among the twelve, well, we would be encouraged. We would be enthusiastic. We would be like any young graduate from seminary, full of zeal and full of ambition and full of hope at what he might accomplish for the kingdom. We would have a lot of optimism. If we were left out of that group, we might have a tinge of jealousy. He chose them. He didn't choose me. But the bottom line is our focus more than likely would be on ourselves and on our own personal hopes and on our own personal ambitions. Jesus will deal with that issue with his disciples in the course of time. But here now, he simply calls them and appoints them, not just as disciples, but as apostles, and that is a cause for great optimism. They surely would have been wondering what they might accomplish in this life. And then we see as the passage progresses that Jesus does ministry among a great crowd. This week I spent time in the midst of great crowds, great crowds who are gathering to hear rather famous speakers, famous pastors. And you can see the effect of the crowd. It generates a lot of enthusiasm. People are excited for all sorts of reasons. And the closer you are to the front of the crowd, the more enthusiasm you have. You might even fool yourself into thinking, well, maybe the crowd's in some way following me. Maybe in some way I'm the object of their attention. Or at least I have the hope of I could stand in that place and be the object of that attention too. We're optimistic about what we might become and what we might accomplish, who we might be. But the crowds aren't gathering to see the disciples. They merely get the front row seat. They're gathering to see Jesus because of what he can do. And he's doing amazing things, mighty things. Truly, the kingdom of God has come with power. He's healing people with diseases. He's casting out demons. Even the people who just simply touch him, they sense power coming out from him. What an awesome sight. What an awesome thought. What an amazing cause for optimism. And yet, as we read through again from verse 13 through verse 19, we see that Luke will hint to us that it won't always be roses. It won't always be easy. That the road to go might be tough. We see that first in the mention of Judas. Not the son of James, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. From a narrative standpoint, this little note rather spoils the narrative. If you don't know what's happening, well, now you know. Judas becomes a traitor. But we've all grown up knowing that Judas is an archetype of the treacherous person, the betrayer. We know, most of us, I suppose, what Judas will do and what will happen with him. Luke doesn't tell us much about him, but he tells us right off the bat that this man will betray Christ. He also if you recall what we were, where we were last week, draws our attention to another sort of opposition. 
Remember how the passage ended last week with the scribes and Pharisees in verse 11 going out, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You see the context here. Jesus is facing opposition. It's not just crowds who are clamoring to see him. He's facing opposition from the religious leaders in Israel. And he's going to face opposition from within his inner circle as well. You see, with the religious leaders, they see Jesus as a young upstart from Galilee who threatens their power. They have a monopoly on teaching ministries in Israel. They're the ones that the people are supposed to listen to. They're the ones who see themselves as righteous. and the People should look to them and try to follow them and be like them. Here comes Jesus, preaching a different message, correcting them and contradicting them and rebuking them. And the crowds are going to them and going to him and following him. And they don't like it. They don't like the man. They don't like the message. They want him gone. Already from this early stage of Jesus' ministry, you see that there are people conspiring to oppose him. And already from this early stage in Jesus' ministry, we know that one from his inner circle will betray him. And this indeed is what the Christian life is very often like. This morning, as we prayed, we talked about the nation of India. I heard from a man this week who does ministry in India, and he spoke about the threats that he has personally received from the prime minister of that nation, the most populous nation on earth. Threats that go like this. You really need to stop this Western influence, or else. Or else what? Or else. That's the kind of thing that Christians throughout this world face, not just in India, in Iran, in North Korea, in China, all throughout Africa. And we face it here too, just in a subtler way, in a different way. No one's going to drag us from our homes, burn our property, and throw us in prison. Not now. Not yet, perhaps. Perhaps someday. But children in school, how will they be treated when their friends know that they don't engage in the activities that, they, that their friends engage in because they're Christians? They don't view the things that their friends view. They don't go to the places that their friends go. They talk about Jesus, and it's just a little bit strange, that weird, awkward kid. And it's no different for adults, how we're spoken about, how we're treated. And it can always get worse, and we need to know that. Not so we can avoid it and hide ourselves from it and shield it, shield ourselves from it, or our children when they grow up. They'll have to face it too if they close with Christ and come to faith. No, we need to know about it so that we can prepare ourselves for that storm. The ships at sea don't avoid the storm. They just close the hatches and they ready themselves to go through it. And our Lord would have us go through that storm and He would have us know ahead of time that it won't always be the highs, that it's sometimes the lows. And we need to see that and we need to recognize that. But it's hard to see that when you're full of excitement on those days like the disciples were. When they were called and commissioned and they were seeing Jesus do mighty works, it would have been hard to look ahead and anticipate what was going to come. Nevertheless, for us, Luke gives us the hints that difficulties will surely come. We have reasons for optimism, and we have reasons for pessimism. 
Now let me say a word to those of you who are not yet disciples of Christ, who have not yet closed with Him in faith. The crowds that gathered to Jesus were full of men and women who would not become His disciples. They followed Him in the good times when they could be healed of an illness or to get a free meal. But when trouble came, many, many of them fled. When they got a broader perspective, they did not want what Jesus was offering. The Navy used to say, join the Navy, see the world. And to many, that sounded like a lot of fun. Until they discovered that the part of the world you were going to see was the 71% that looks the same everywhere. You see a lot of water when you're in the Navy. Generally, it all looks pretty much the same. And it's a lot of hard work. And you're sleeping in tight quarters. It's not as good and wonderful as it seems when you hear those words, see the world, join the Navy. No. Jesus right now is showing His disciples mighty works. He's showing them what the kingdom looks like when it comes in power. And yet, there is a day when it will be difficult, when they will see hardship. And for many of you, if you are not yet following Christ, your thought is, why would I do that? Why would I embrace a life like that? You're up here telling me that this life as a Christian is going to be full of hardship, is going to be full of difficulty, It is. What I want you to see is this issue from a different perspective. I want you to see it from a gospel perspective, from a perspective of the good news. I pray that you might understand this by looking at the life of Jesus. You know the story. Follow his path from here to the cross. He went through difficulty. He went through hardship. Why? Because there was a divinely ordained purpose for him to die on a cross. He did not just go there by accident. He went to the cross for us to die for our sins. Those simple words explain why it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die and rise. And yet that was not the end of his story. We need to see that perspective too. Because he went to the cross, as the author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, knowing that his father would not leave him in the grave, but the father would raise him up and would exalt him to his right hand. And he went and he died as it was written of him, and he rose again, and before he ascended, he bid his disciples once more to follow him in this way, knowing that his pattern of suffering and death and exaltation would also be their pattern as well. Jesus does not call us to a life of difficulty and suffering for its own sake. He is not like those Greek philosophers of old who think that somehow suffering in itself is a good in its end, as an end in itself. No, He calls us to a life of suffering, knowing that we have a better promise. You must understand that to reject the call of Christ, to reject the gospel, is to choose something pleasant now in exchange for an eternity of suffering. But to choose to follow Christ now may mean difficulty, may mean suffering, but there is an eternal promise of blessedness that will last forever. And it's 
for you. That offer is for you. If you will receive Christ Jesus by faith, not trusting in yourselves and in your own good works, but trusting in the one who died for you, who was righteous for you, who rose for you, that you might have life in him and through him forever and evermore. That's the promise of the gospel. That's a sweet exchange. A little bit of difficulty now, but eternal blessedness because of what Christ has done for us. And so I plead with you, don't reject that call this morning. Now is the time. If you hear his word, receive it with joy as the good news of God's great grace to you in Jesus Christ. Now, to those of us who are Jesus' disciples, I say this. We need that same perspective. And we need that perspective from the one who has the perspective. And here I said I would take you back to verse 12 of this passage. So let me take you there now. Because before we see the call of the apostles, the commissioning of the apostles, and before we see Jesus' mighty work among the crowds, we see Jesus on his knees on the mountain in prayer to his heavenly Father. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. What this shows us is that Jesus is the one who has the perspective that we need. He is the wiser one who knows and knew how to live as a man before his heavenly Father. And that involved frequent and regular and constant communion with God. I brought up that idea of the crowds earlier today. I brought up the crowds that I spent time with this week, many of whom were clamoring to get near to their favorite teacher, their favorite Christian preacher. One of the things I noticed about those preachers was how eager they were to withdraw. Those who are near the front row but aren't at the center of it all, look at that and say, I'd love to be there. That would be really great to have everyone clamoring to shake my hand. But those who are at the center of it all realize they can't fulfill the needs of those crowds. How quickly they want to withdraw. How quickly they want to be isolated in a smaller room with a smaller group of their friends and companions. Jesus lived as a man. And he could actually meet the needs of the crowd but he also experienced human weakness. And he knew that what he needed more than anything else in his ministry as a man was to commune with his heavenly Father, to go to him in prayer. And that is what he did again and again. Luke draws our attention to the prayer life of Christ. And we need to learn from that example. Because what he shows us is that the faithful disciple of Christ lives in the dependence upon God. And that involves prayer, and it involves coming to God's Word. It involves trusting Him and communing with Him and recognizing that He is the only one who is able to strengthen us for whatever He has called us. His disciples would need to learn that. They didn't have the resources in themselves. Jesus did not call them because they had something that He needed. He called them so that they might learn to depend upon God, just as he himself depended upon God. When we pray, it's like looking to the horizon. It's like gaining a perspective. What we're doing 
is we're conforming our will and our mind to the will of God if we are praying rightly. And that means we pray in conversation. How does God speak to us? Through His Word, through the Scripture. And when we pray, we ought to be reading and responding to what He has said and praying in light of who He is, praying in accordance with what He has revealed concerning Himself and concerning His will, praying for one another in that same way. Some of us might say, well, how do I learn to do that? Well, we'll learn that together. But there are some practical ways in which you can do that. For you men, for instance, you're welcome to join us this coming Saturday morning for our breakfast, our monthly breakfast, as we learn to pray by reading the prayers of the Apostle Paul and how he described his own prayer life. And so we learn from him how we might also pray in line with God's will and conform our minds and our wills to the will of God. You can also get little books. There's a book on the book table, I think it's out right now, called Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. It'll take you an afternoon at most to read, and yet so worth it, simply showing you how you might take the Psalms, how you might take Proverbs, how you might take any passage of Scripture, and let God's Word form your words as you go to your Heavenly Father in prayer. These are ways in which we can practically learn to follow Jesus' example. But at the highest level, I want you to see that what He is doing is demonstrating that He is the one in the midst of all of this who sees very clearly because He sees His need to depend upon His Father. He sees and senses His need for communion with the Father. And so He's the one who is able to teach us and to give us the perspective that we need. And that's what he does as he begins this sermon. He lifts up his eyes on his disciples and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Here Jesus gives us a perspective, but not as one who is turning our attention to the horizon. He's giving us a perspective of the kingdom, but not our perspective looking out at the kingdom. Here he's giving us a perspective from the kingdom. Think of it like a mountain. You can look at a distant mountain and see that whole mountain, or you can go at the top of that mountain and you can survey everything down below and see so much further. And our Heavenly Father looks down at the ground on which we stand and he looks at us and he looks at his people and this is what he says through his son. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you who are persecuted for the sake of Christ. These are not people who we would look at and say, that's blessedness, that's the good life, that's what I want in this life. Not just simply looking at it from the perspective of the ground. But this is the perspective of our Father in heaven, looking at us, looking at His people. 
We're going to look more closely at these Beatitudes and their woes, consequent woes that follow after them next week as we come back to the Sermon on the Plain. Today, I simply want you to see it from a high level. I want you to see what Jesus is saying to His people, that there is a blessedness in the Christian life, a blessedness that is present and real right now, and a blessedness that will be eternal and forever. He would have us know that. Not that we will be blessed. We are blessed. And here he uses this language of poverty and hunger and sorrow, not restricting these words only to those who lack resources in human means. For in the Gospel of Luke, one of the archetypes of poverty will be tax collectors, people that Luke introduces us to us again and again, who had lots of money, but they were impoverished in a more important way. They had nothing to commend them to a holy God, and they knew it. And they found blessedness because they came to the one through whom all blessings flow. We need to see that. For us, that's like looking to the horizon, but it's also like receiving the perspective of God from His kingdom. The Christian life is blessed. Let me take that illustration once more and turn it once more. This is what it's like. In the 19th century, many people emigrated to this country. My ancestors were among them. And I think sometimes of my great-great-grandmother receiving a letter from her husband who had gone ahead of her to prepare a home, to prepare a life, to get a house, to make a life for them in Minnesota. And she got that letter, a letter that said things like, now's the time to come. Get on a boat. Come over to America. Let's make this a life. It's going to be a blessed life. And she could go on that boat where she would have been stacked with other people like sardines in close quarters with that rocking motion of the sea and all the sickness that attends it. But she could go up topside on the deck and she could look out at the horizon and know that one day land would come over that horizon and she would be very near to her home. And she could get another perspective as she looked down at that letter. And she says, and I have a husband who's waiting for me, who's prepared a home and a life for me. That's what this is like for us. But it's different in one way. This letter that we have received from Christ, who is to his church the bridegroom, the church, the people of God, to him are his bride. And he has given us this letter. And it begins with these beautiful words, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And why? Because God's kingdom, my Father's kingdom, Jesus would say, it's yours. But his letter does not say, pack your bags and get on a boat and come to me. He would have us rather endure, be patient, be faithful, enduring hardship and difficulty and suffering. Because he says, his, me- his message would read, Blessed are you, for I have a kingdom, and that kingdom is yours, and I am bringing it to you. That's the beautiful message that Christ gave to his disciples when he preached to them this great sermon. It's the beautiful message he gave to his apostles to buoy them in the storm. And it's the beautiful message he gives to us 
who followed Christ to encourage us to endure until the day of his coming. We are blessed if we are in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a glorious promise that you have given us through your Son. We deserve none of this, which is why it is such blessedness. And for this reason too, because you are gracious and merciful and so graciously look upon those who are despised in the world, who are rejected by men because of their poverty, both real and spiritual, because of their hunger, both real and spiritual, because of their sorrow. And yet, you look upon them and say, if, they, if we will come to your Son by faith, then we will be blessed, we will be satisfied. You, O oh Lord, are so gracious to us. We praise you and thank you. Help us evermore to trust this truth that you have given us. Help us to believe it. Help us to fix our eyes on this horizon as we look at your words and we look for the coming of our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.